When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. A crime at the Amex. Hello and welcome to episode 23 of this season's Real Football Cast. As always, I'm your host, Dan Tracy, and in the next 60 minutes, we'll be dissecting all the hot topics in football. As per usual, we'll be discussing what's been going on in the Premier League over the past few days, while in addition to that, there are also some off-pitch activities that have caught our eye and they'll be getting our attention in the next hour. It's been another incredible week of football, and this week it's a full house. That means leading the line and wearing the captain's armband is Carl. So Carl, how have you been? since we spoke a fortnight ago. Uh, Not too bad, Dan. I mean, on the football front, Spurs-wise, not particularly great. But, you know, we've had plenty of good football to talk about and get into this week. So, looking forward to it as normal, mate. Fantastic. You're also joined by Fulham fan Matthew. Matthew, I hope all is well. I have a feeling, actually, it just might be. It is indeed. It's a wonderful time. Fulham are on the march to safety. The country's on the march to uh, lockdown being ended. And most importantly of all, we have a new prop to demonstrate this episode, which hopefully will make an appearance. So, yes, everything is well in my world. Fantastic. I can feel the radiation from here. It's fantastic. And someone else who's beaming, I know they're beaming from here to here, is Palace fan Max. Max, how are you after Monday night? I'm absolutely fantastically good. I, I, I'm on cloud nine. I could not be happier. <laughs> right. Hold those thoughts for just a moment because we're going to get to those very, very quickly. Before we do, I'm just going to do the social media bits first. Otherwise, we'll be talking to the abyss once more. So first, if you want to get in touch with me, you can. That's on Twitter, at Dan Tracy, 1983. Also, the podcast has its own account, which is at Real Football Pod. And if you want to become a shareholder, all you need to do is follow and join our very elite members club. You can find me via iTunes by searching for Real Football Cast. If you use that platform, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And if you like us, leave a review so we move up the league table. And if you're not a fan of all things Apple, you can find it on SoundCloud, Audio Boom, Spotify. And also, actually, there's loads of links. If you go to Linktree slash RealFootballCast and put a dot between the R and the E, it's a bit fiddly. But once you crack that code, there's 10 podcast platforms for you to listen to. It's never been easier. Right, it's time to go live. Where should we go first? Well, we can only go to the South Coast. 
as I believe a crime has been committed at the Amex. Max, I'll start with you this week. How on earth did you pull that rabbit out of the hat? Yeah, it was an absolute complete robbery. And I really, really hope, you know, not in a wasting police time sense, I really hope that, you know, <laughs> people were trying to um, report robberies last night because it was it was an absolute robbery. It was it was unbelievable. It's one of the one of the best games I can remember watching. Definitely in that um in that Brighton Palace uh, rivalry, which, you know, a lot of other clubs don't understand. It's quite esoteric from the outside, but it was such a it was such an unbelievably emotional ending to um to the game and especially considering all the all the trouble that palace fans have had in, in recent weeks with the poor style of football and everything it was just it was just outstanding and it really shows and graham potter said after the game it really shows the beauty of football and you know in what kind of other sport could could a team have 75 possession and 25 shots to palace's three palace had two shots in in had two touches in their box and they were both goals it's it's astounding i'm i'm over the moon Matthew, once again, it's a case of what do we know? Because last week, we are talking about Roy Hodgson probably having an awkward conversation with Steve Parrish, but that game shows there's still some managerial acumen left in the old dog. I think we said that we're pretty pro-Roy Hodgson. Oh, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Think, I think this is more towards the end of the season. We know what Roy Hodgson will do. He will get these sorts of results. Again, Roy Hodgson hasn't really changed probably since the 90s in terms of what he, in terms of what he brings in terms of football. So this is just, you know, par for the course, Crystal Palace. Yeah, he will pick up these results against the, the hated Brighton for whatever reason you guys seem to hate Brighton. Um, but yeah, it will be... It, it, it's a good result, but at the end of the day, you know, Roy Hodgson's career isn't really going to be judged on victories over Brighton. It's, you know, it's still coming to, it's still, as we believe, coming to the end of its time. It's just, you know, it's a good, it's a good result for Roy Hodgson, but it's not exactly something that's going to alter his legacy completely. So, Cole, losing to your arch rivals is always going to be a bitter pill to swallow, and especially in the context of last night, that fantastic Ben Seco go out of nowhere. So, when you consider that Brighton were unbeaten in six before Monday night, that defeat's going to smart even more, isn't it? Yeah, it's right, especially you know, say, when you look at the context of the game and, and how dominant they were, you know, it, it will, you know, it's going to hurt. I guess the only good thing, if you're if you're looking at it from Brighton's point of view, if you want to take some positive, is that it's a game where you've outplayed the opposition. You know, you haven't lost at home to a team where, you know, it's been scrappy, you haven't played well. You sit there and say, well, if we play like that, nine times out of ten, we're going to win our games. And, you know, considering that obviously where Brighton are in the table, yes, the defeat is going to hurt. It's going to hurt against who it's against more than anything. But I think if you look at the positives, you say we've played really well. You know, we've created so many chances. And on another day, we possibly that that game is a massive, a big win for them. Um, and, and, you know, they carry that momentum on. Now it's all about how they bounce back from that defeat, because the last thing they want to do is go on a run of maybe, say, three or four defeats. Now, um, you've just got to take that one on the chin. But make sure you carry on playing that way, because if you do play that way and you're that dominant, then the results will come. But they play some really good football, Brighton. You know, I actually really enjoy watching them whenever they're on. Carl, I'll stay with you then, because they're now four points from safety after a resurgent Fulham, which we'll get to in a bit. So are they looking over their shoulders now, Brighton? Is that defeat going to be a kind of a concern because they have knocked on the door continuously, not got what they wanted? As you say, is it now how they react to that? And if they can sort of dust themselves off quite quickly, then that bitter taste sort of eradicates quite soon. 
Yeah, that's the key, isn't it? You know, I think, you know, all great sides have said, you know, they, they, they expect to lose, but it's all about how you bounce back from that. So if you lose one and then again go on a run of five or six defeat or wins rather, or, you know, pick up a few draws, um, then, you know, that's not a problem. You can take the odd defeat on the chin. The problem is when you're down there, teams sometimes have a tendency to lose one. And then, you know, the next three or four games, they, they then go and lose those as well. And it's hard to pick that momentum back up. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I think we were saying it was all virtually done, wasn't it? Yeah. You know, in the relegation battle, you know, we thought that's it. There's no chance that either Fulham or West Brom can kind of pick themselves up and get the, the gap that there was down. But credit to Fulham because, you know, they've put that run of results together um, and they've now given themselves a real shout of actually making a fight of it um, you know it's still I, I think now if we look at it realistically I believe there is two positions that are already dealt with and done but Fulham I have to say you know I take my hat off to them because I thought they were gone but they have now put themselves in a position where there is a real fight and Newcastle and Brighton will be looking over their shoulders thinking we can't afford too many slip-ups now because this, this mob are playing really well and we don't want to give them a sniff and give them some encouragement. So Max, let's flip it back to Palace quickly because that win creates more breathing space between you and the bottom three. You know, it was just kind of not, I don't know, relegation battle on the horizon, but you know, if you didn't win, you sort of negative spiral and all that kind of issue. However, now you look at the table and with the points tally that would probably be needed, you're probably thinking, what, two more wins from safety? Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. We're, and, and it was a massive result, um, not only because obviously it was against our massive um, historical rivals, but because had Brighton won, they would have gone above us. And, you know, we're now 10 points clear of the uh, relegation zone. And had we lost, it obviously would have been four. And the form that Fulham are in, and we play Fulham next as well. Oh, had we lost and then yeah, yeah, I know, I know, I know, mental. So if, if we'd have lost the Brighton game and then lost to, you know, a resurgent Fulham as well, then we're really getting getting close to the kind of relegation zone, even though five or six games ago when we'd gone on a pretty good run, we seemed to be really far clear of it. But yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a really important result um, for, for the club. And so, yeah, even get, getting those extra two points right at the end, obviously it means, you know, loads to the fans. But aside from the... From the rivalry, it was a really important uh, extra couple of points, a really important three points in the grand scheme of the Premier League as well. So, Matthew, if we look at Palace, and let's say they do get those two wins in double quick time, one of them could be against your lot, Fulham, at the weekend. But if they do hit six points quite quickly, is there a danger that, once again, Palace are on the beach and that might also go against Roy Hodgson? Because if they have a meek end to the season, it might then sort of add to the the kind of narrative of, oh, well, you know, he's run out of fire and et cetera, et cetera, can't get the players going. So do they need to finish strong as well, Palace? Um, there's a, there's an argument. I don't think Palace need to finish strong. I think the point you made about Roy Hodgson, I think it's, it's a case of can Roy Hodgson finish strong because that will play into the narrative because, you know, as, I, as we have said many times, we think that this is going to be Roy Hodgson's last season. We don't think there's there's really any much more for him for him to do. So if, you know, for him, they end up with the last, you know, six, seven games, as you say, on the beach, then Roy Hodgson isn't really going to be sort of affected by that. The only real you know, change is going to be, you know, in Premier League prize money. So can they, you know, if they drop two gate, two points or two places, rather, does that cost them... So my head's on like 10 million or whatever, whatever yeah, the fee is. So about that, which in the grand scheme is still really pocket change for the most part. So Crystal Palace really don't need to 
don't need to finish strong. But Roy Hodgson, if he wants to carry on, then he will need a strong end to the season just so he can go to the board and say, right, I can still pick up results, even when it doesn't matter. I can still pick up results. So come next season, when we do need results, you can still rely on me again. Because if he doesn't, then there is enough ammo for you know the Crystal Palace board to say, this is two seasons in a row. You've sort two seasons in a row, you're on the beach, you say. You don't have the same passion and desire for it. It's time to let you go. So I think that's really all that matters is going to be, you know, it's for it's for Hodgson rather than the club. Yeah, good point, actually. I think it's more about him rather than the club. But, Matthew, I'll stay with you because I want to talk about your club. Now, a fantastic week for Fulham. Four from six in terms of points. Four unbeaten now the run. We spoke last week about Fulham needing to make hay while the sun shines in the sense that if Newcastle are without their talisman, now's the time to get points. And that's exactly what you're doing. We have, and it's. If, if I'm being honest, it's kind of taken a lot of Fulham fans by surprise as well. You know, not just the um, the the result against Everton, but also the fact that you know Sheffield United. You know, these are the games that in the past we have sort of come unstuck against, and even even against Sheffield United, you know, it was only a one 0 win, and Sheffield United are in the discussion, or at least have been in the discussion, for one of the worst Premier League teams of all time, in with the Derbies of 2008 and the Sunderlands of 06 and the Watfords of 07, sort of. They, they've been in the discussion. So for us to only come away with a 1-0 win, it's still not entirely convincing, but at the end of the day, the fact that we have a goal difference advantage over Newcastle, I think kind of makes it somewhat bearable. If we were four or five or six goal difference you know, behind them, then you might come off it and say, right, not only do we need to win, but we need to win convincingly. But then giving us that just a little bit of cushion, which now means that effectively survival is in our own hands. Because if we match results with Newcastle, then it comes down to the final day of the season. We could get them on goal difference sort of thing. So it's that there's still a lot of work to be done because we've still got a lot of the big teams still to play. But there is a lot more hope in the in the Fulham camp than there was, you know, four or five weeks ago. Which is all you can ask for. Well, what a plot line, Carl, because, Matthew, is it at Craven Cottage or St James's Park on the final day of the season? It's at Craven Cottage. Oh, and, Carl, a Craven Cottage with fans. How about that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's all set up perfectly, isn't it? You know, and w- what a game that would be, wouldn't it? You know, if it's all on the line, then, you know, there's only one game you're going to watch that day because, let's face it, I get the impression, you know, the title's done at the moment. So I think the interest then does kind of switch, doesn't it, to the bottom half. And if Fulham can keep going the way they are, um, I get the feeling that if things go the way they're continuing at the moment, it could be Newcastle that are more in need of a result on that day than actually Fulham themselves. Well, if you map their two trajectories, like you say, if it continues, it's Fulham crossing over Newcastle and Newcastle plummeting into the bottom three. But Max, it was a good win for Fulham at the weekend, no doubt about that. Does the defeat for Sheffield United kill off any small shoots of recovery that may have been growing over the past couple of weeks? Uh, I, I think so. I think so. I mean, you know, they'll they'll keep fighting because it's not mathematically over. And you know, Chris Wilder is um, he, he's not just going to accept them kind of going down limply and completely give up all hope. But I think ultimately it's going to be too little, too late for them. Um, I think also that they're a little bit un, unlucky. Um, to it'll be interesting to hear, hear um, um Matthew's thoughts about this about the the penalty at the end. I thought it was a penalty, probably not a red, but I mean you know they were pretty hard done by and the fact that not only have they lost they've lost to 
one of their uh, rivals for relegation and with that, you know, that late sickener of a decision at the end as well, I think it will really affect them, you know, mentally. They're without, obviously we know they've been without um, their key defender, Jack O'Connell. They're now without John Egan for two months as well, you know, for, for the majority of the rest of the season. And uh, yeah, I think they're, they're really going to struggle and they're pretty much down. I'll say with you, Max, very quickly then. Chris Wilder is in, what, late February, it's March next week. He's still in a job. Is it safe to assume he's going to be in the job all season? Uh, I think so. I think so. Because it's not like, you know, Watford last season when they were just kind of replacing managers every two weeks just to try and desperately keep them up. I think Sheffield United realised that... um, you know the kind of the, the the sustainable long-term plan is that is to trust Chris Wilder, to trust his methods and his coaching and his recruitment, and to yet yeah, go down, um, and then you know give him the backing and the support to to get straight back up again. You know Burnley went down under Dyche, didn't they? And then they um, they backed him to get out of the Championship, which he did, and now they've secured themselves again, um, and. And yeah, I think I, I think I can see Wilder staying at Sheffield United, and I think they've got a decent chance of going back up next season with all the knowledge and know-how that he has from the last two years. Okay, then, Cole. As Max has just alluded to, there was an almighty bit of contention later on in that Fulham Sheffield United clash. Probably, actually, definitely a heart-in-mouth moment for Matthew. Ariola's challenge on Bogle looked like it should have been a penalty. So, how does VAR not come to that conclusion? Yeah, I. I... You know, for me, it's probably the worst decision of the weekend if we're looking at them because, you know, I, I'm quite sure. I think Matthew may may feel differently given given his allegiance, but I don't know how someone looks at that and says, "Oh no, no, that's fine. That, that that's not a penalty." You know, the, the goalkeeper is reckless. You know, we can you can claim he gets the ball with his foot, but it's not the foot he's intending to try and go for the ball with. Um, and I, like I say, I'm just miffed. I can, as I've said this time and time again, I can accept in real time a referee doesn't spot something or, or may not see a challenge the way, you know, the VAR official can look at it. So you can accept in real time an official might go, oh, I'm, I'm not too sure on that one. I don't think it was. But when another official is looking at that and can have the replays and the angles that you get and can still come away and go, nah, no penalty, I think you're OK, play on, then I- I'm miffed. Because for me, that one was, you know, is one of the more stonewall penalties you'll see this season. Um, and let's say Sheffield United can feel aggrieved that, that they haven't got that and possibly given themselves a chance to at least get a point out of the game. OK, then, Matthew, with your Fulham lens squarely fixed on, did you get out of jail there? Doug, this is only a contentious decision if it's the wrong decision. And it was not, it was not the wrong decision. It was the correct decision. Ariola Ariola gets them. And I say and I say this not I say this not just as a Fulham fan, but I also say this as someone who plays as a goalkeeper in my youth. He gets the ball, let's move on, let's just deal with it. I mean that's 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 really it. No need for any no need for any argument. But on a serious point, I've seen there have been two contrasting views with this. Um, Dermot Gallagher, when he does his ref watch thing on Sky, he says he says that he didn't think it was a penalty. And Mark Halsey, who I speak to um, through my work, he says he thinks it's a penalty and a yellow card. So that there kind of yeah, all the talk about VAR that kind of shows where the problem is you know in a decision like that you you have two opposing views that think you know 
they they can't make their mind up on it either. So it all depends on you know which referee you have on any on any given day. Which if you want to you know criticize VAR and the use and the officials' use of it, yeah, it's the officials that are always the problem. It's not the technology itself. I think, and again, being serious, I think. If it had gone to if it had gone to VAR, I think it probably stays as not a penalty because I think it's one of those hard to overturn because he makes contact with the ball. But at the same time, if the referee on the weekend, his name is escaping me right now, if he'd have given the penalty and it had gone to VAR to check, it probably stays a penalty. It is one of those, as we've discussed many times through the season, is there enough to overturn it? You know, you need to be 100% convinced either way. I don't think that. I think there's enough doubt in there to stick with the original decision. Yes, very fair point. I think it's just subjective, isn't it? And all it has done is pass the sort of buck further up the line, really. So it's just the mood of that official on the day. So Fulham get the uh, the three points. But Max, sort of tongue-in-cheek, what, a few weeks ago, I was saying I quite enjoyed Fulham's plan of drawing their way out of relegation. Now, obviously, when you're picking up just points, it's not a big enough leap. However, has that five-game streak of them avoiding defeat has that kind of cultivated the belief and the confidence that we're seeing now? Because if they're not losing games, you know, it's just a stride in the right direction. And all of a sudden that belief gets bigger and bigger. And we're finally seeing the positive product of that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Because you're, you're right. The the points that kind of individual single solitary points themselves aren't going to be the points that keep Fulham up. If Fulham stay up, it's going to be because of the wins they get. Um but at the same time, a point is better than no points. You know, you've got to respect the draw because, um, you know, previously, earlier on in the season, Fulham were losing kind of games like that. And if they're even a nil-nil is, is you know, or a 1-1 is good because it shows that you're kind of, you're really in the game, you're determined, you're you're solid at the back. And, you know, they're, they're not giving up goals and, and losses easily, which is really good. And that will cultivate the kind of belief in their camp that, all right, you know, we might not have one today but we we kept them out for most of the game you know we might have conceded we might have conceded one or, or maybe two but but we got the draw you know and and, and it just shows that they're that they're competitive enough to get that result and the fact that they're you know stringing a run of games unbeaten that that losing feeling that you know is permeating like Sheffield United for example and you know they went on a huge run of losing games going um going on a run where you're unbeaten has the opposite effect and you start thinking well you know we're not going to get beaten today and yeah it, it was it's, it's really positive that they're in that they're in such good form and even if you know the draws the points from the draws themselves might not save them from relegation the kind of belief that it instills in that group might well do okay let's go to Merseyside now and the fact that Liverpool losing is not even the main story because it's happening with too much regularity as of late so Carl it's now four straight league defeats what else have we learned Compared to the previous three, I don't think much to be honest. You know, I think you know, I think it's clear. Obviously, you know, the injuries this season have really kind of taken it out of Liverpool. You know, you got a front three that you know are never getting a rest at the moment, um, and I think you probably can look and say that unfortunately Liverpool probably kind of sat on their laurels a little bit too much at the end of last season and as we've seen you know, all great teams sometimes you know that you know Fergie was great wasn't he at thinking you know I just I might need to change it up get rid of a couple bring a couple more in just freshen it up a little bit more competition and I think unfortunately for Liverpool you know they were possibly always a big injury to Van Dijk or you know Salah or Mane away from possibly having their form suffering. You know, 
the injuries they've picked up, though, you know, that's a massive list at key times. You know, the goalkeeper obviously now has kind of gone off the boil as well. Um, and I think, unfortunately, yeah, you're just seeing a side that have lost one of their key men at the back and it's really hit them hard. And, you know, the momentum has gone the other way now and they're really struggling to kind of pick up any sort of form. Um, and everything seems to be going against them, does, doesn't it? You know, another injury to Henderson this weekend. And, you know, if you're Klopp, you're just sitting there probably scratching your head, just going, this has got to be one of the worst, you know, the worst bit of luck we're having injury-wise. But, unfortunately the way it's looking right now, if this kind of continues to the end of the season, they've got a fight for top four on their hands. Um, and, and that doesn't look good when you're defending champions, does it? No, absolutely not. A very meek defence of the title thus far. But Matthew, we've spoken about their defence at large this season. And to be honest, I'm probably in danger of asking the same questions. But with John Henson also suffering an injury as a playing defender, is this simply the football gods balancing out all their luck for the last couple of seasons? Yeah, it is because you know you can understand one or two injuries here and here and there, like, and even even to an extent like Virgil Van Dijk just himself getting injured. You can kind of, if you want to put the football gods or anything, you can kind of understand that to an extent. But the fact that it's gone so way through, you know, even the the you know makeshift defenders, you know, in Jordan Henderson and I think Fabinho has been injured recently as well. So the the fact that it's all come down in just one season again, if it had been sprinkled across the season then you might be able to say, oh, maybe it's a Jurgen Klopp thing, you know, he's, his players can't keep up with it. But the fact that it's all happened in one season, I don't think you can really put too much blame on Jurgen Klopp. I think this is as much luck as anything else and, and bad luck. But I, I'll say I'll say one time, I'll say it a thousand times until I'm blue in the face. If you, if you ask any Liverpool fan, if they had to put up with this season after, you know, Champions League final in 2018, winning the Champions League in 2019, winning the league in 2020, and then having a bad 2021, I think every single one of them would snap your hand off. So they can't really be too angry about how things have played out. Oh, of course, you know, if that's the boom and bust cycle, you'll take the, the biggest booms, won't you? And they have done. So, you know, Tottenham, kind of just mediocre flatlining across the last decade and whatnot. We'd love a bit of boom and bust, Carl, wouldn't we? You know, it's just simple, simple uh, fandom, I guess. Oh, I I'll take a League Cup then, let alone the Champions League and a <laughs> exactly. Premier League title. Not greedy. <laughs> but, um, but let's move on, because Max Mohamed Salah drew a blank, but he also drew the ire once again of those watching at home. Another set of laughable dive attempts. Credit to the referee for not falling for the falling. But is this starting to get a bit tedious now? Yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, it, it, it's not new. <laughs> so in a sense, I'm a little bit... Um, I'm a little bit surprised that kind of the, the general public consensus it seems to be just kind of vamping up right now and, and, and drawing attention to it because it's been the case for a couple of years. Um, and I'm not going to say he's the only player in the Premier League who does it because, you know, players in every, ta- in, in every team do it generally. And, and Bruno um, has a kind of habit for doing it, you know, Mane. So I'm not going to say, oh, it's just Liverpool, it's just Salah and Mane. It, it's lots of the big teams do it. Um, but I think it's right that it's... Um, that it's called out when when we see it and when it's particularly obvious as it is often with um with Salah um I think yeah we, you know we need to call it out and I don't know why referees have gone away from um because there was a season a, a couple of years ago when they seemed to be giving out yellow cards quite regularly for simulation for diving and that seems to have kind of stopped now so I don't know if they've got a, a memos you know telling uh, if they received a memo telling them to to stop giving out yellow cards for diving, um, maybe because they know they'll get um, 
they'll get blasted by Klopp in the, in the post-match press conference. But yeah, I mean, we need to stamp out of the game really because no one likes to see it. Well, there was the Umar Nias two-match ban for simulation, wasn't there, a couple of seasons ago? And that's kind of not something that's enforced anymore. And Cole, it reminds me of Didier Drogba when he first came to the Premier League. He was chucking himself to the floor with relative ease to start with. And it was kind of like, oh, you know, foreigners and all this. But someone had a word in his ear and sort of said, we don't really do that over here. And then quickly that was eradicated out of his game. So does someone need to say the same to Salah? Or has the game become too much win at all costs and do whatever you need to do to succeed? Yeah, I think that's the problem, isn't it? You know, I think I think the game. You know, clubs now just want to win at all costs and, and not being funny. You know, if a guy goes down on the deck and you keep getting penalties every week, I don't think clubs or managers are going to turn around and, and ask that guy to stop doing that because if that's what's getting you free points and Champions League football with the money and everything involved, then hey, listen, no club or owner is going to say, "Oh, I don't want none of that in my side." Thank you very much. This is not the Clough era. Um, but I think this solely falls down to the governing bodies who are running the game because I think they're the people that need to, you know, after the event, OK, you might not do, you know, a ref might not do something during the game. But then I think these are the sort of incidents that need to be looked at after the game. And, you know, I don't see why you can't dish out, say, some some punishment after the game, you know, and say, well, look, listen, you're, this guy is clearly going down. Um, you know, that that's a booking for diving. Um, and, and I think until the officials start stamping it down, then I think we'll see this continue. But again, you know, that then kind of takes you to the argument, doesn't it, where players will then argue, yeah, but hang on a minute. If I stay on my feet, if I, if I get dragged back or, you know, a guy attempts to trip me, I stay on my feet and I'm off balance and I get the shot away and miss you're not going to put it back and give me the penalty. So I think, you know, that sort of thing needs to be looked at as well. You know, if you can see a guy has been fouled, stays on his feet, can't get really get the shot away properly, that should be pulled back and possibly a penalty there because then you might see players think, well, no, I'm going to get the penalty, so let me try and stay on my feet. But while there's that inkling that you'll need to go down to get a penalty, then I think, you know, players are going to do it. But it is something that always needs to be looked at. Will we ever stamp it out? I'm not so sure. Yeah, I think you're exactly right in that there needs to be more of a reward for being honest in the sense that if you sort of don't go to ground but are agreed, then you should really be getting a penalty. But also there needs to be a stronger deterrent if you're going to ground when you shouldn't be. It's kind of, you know, there's two polar opposites and we're neither scratching one or the other at the moment. So that's the problem that we have and whether it's ever solved, Carl, as you say, who knows. But Matthew, Everton gave Liverpool an early problem after they went in front through Richarlison. And after that, they kind of just set the tempo really and at Anfield that's not something that really happens is it you know an opposition team playing at will playing with ease they made Liverpool look quite ordinary no exactly and I think a lot of credit needs to go to Carlo Ancelotti you know, and, the, and the players as well and I know there was a lot of build up a lot of talk in the in the build up you know if, if Everton are ever going to end their 22 year I think it is drought to winning at Everton yeah. now is the, now is the time to do it you know, how many times have we said, you know, during, you know, no, not just during Liverpool Everton, but, you know, through many games, you know, if ever this, there's a time for a team to do X and then they don't, and then they end up don't doing X. So I think a lot of credit needs to go for Carlo Ancelotti and the players to actually say, right, they have this moment in their hands. They have this opportunity and they went and seized it. So I think that just you know, credits them and also goes to show that Everton, you know, they've been in and around the, in the top six for most of the season now. And there is, Still an outside chance of them reaching the top four. I think that game was, you know, pretty much a statement that you know when you need them to come up and deliver, 
they can step up and deliver. It's now just a case of whether or not they'll be able to do it, you know, between now and the end of the season. Because they'll 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 have a couple more games, I'm sure. They're, I'm sure they'll they'll have other games against teams in and around the top six. But now they've got this first one out of the way and they've shown that they can do it, that will just give them that little boost to say, right, we can go on and we can do it again. Yeah, it's all about following up now, isn't it? Because they are worth a performance, you know, start the season, four wins in a row. But inconsistency has been their Achilles heel for many years. And it's all about kind of getting rid of that. But Max, in terms of the win, it was confirmed when Gilfie Sigurdsson slotted home from the spot. A decision which saw a VAR delay for the decision um, to award a penalty. Now, the way I understood it, there was no real intent to bring down Dominic Calvert-Lewin. But these days, a lack of intent is not enough to absolve you from the crime. Yeah, correct. And and to be honest, I don't think that um, that, that Trent kind of moved deliberately to trip um, Calvert-Lewin up. And it, but nonetheless, you know, that doesn't mean that it isn't a foul. And it, and it was a foul, in my opinion, um, because Calvert-Lewin, you know, he's, he's going towards goal. He's got, a, you know, a certain tap in and there's no reason for him to, to kind of go down. The contact was... Um, was strong enough that, you know, I think it was a foul. It was enough to bring him down. And, you know, I, I think the ref was right to take the action he did. I don't think it was, uh, you know, particularly malicious or, um, you know, or red card offence or anything, denying a clear goal scoring opportunity. But I thought it was a penalty. And definitely, definitely Mo Salah or Sadio Mane gets that at the other end. Oh, that's a very good point, actually. I didn't think of it from the other direction, but you're probably right. But, Cole, let's go to a day later now. Sunday, the Midlands derby at Villa Park. And one without Jack Grealish, which yeah. kind of pissed off Sky Sports. They did a big hype piece on Madison versus Grealish, and we didn't get that. But what was interesting, though, was the news that the lack of Grealish was leaked the night before. Now, this had quite a big knock-on effect for fantasy football, to the point where Dean Smith was so outraged, <laughs> he's banned it at the club. Now, do you think that's sour grapes from Dino, or is there a wider issue in play here? Yeah, this is a real interesting one, isn't it? You know, when you, when you come up about this, about, you know, players, you know, potentially changing their teams based on team news and everything like that. Um, I don't actually know where I sit with this one. You know, you kind of sit in there thinking, wow, you know, this is just fantasy football. Um, again, will clubs start to maybe start saying to their players they don't want them taking part in this because they don't potentially want, you know, team news or anything leaked if, if a player suddenly starts, you know, dropping certain players from his his team, which might give the opposition the upper hand. Uh, interesting. I, I, I don't know. I don't actually know. It kind of get it being a bit of a storm in a teacup, to be honest. You know, if we're getting if we're getting in a bit of a, a fizz over you know fantasy football, then the, the, the world is kind of going mad, isn't it? But I can see how some managers won't like it um, because they won't like their players potentially doing that. Um, and I guess this will be another one that comes down to each manager's kind of individual preferences. But you could see some maybe starting to say to their players, I don't want you being involved, you know, um, in that sort of thing. And it's not something we want you to be taking part in, um, especially not in their, you know, potentially under their real names, maybe. You know, if you're going to do that, do it under a false false name. But it's a real interesting story and one that I think it'll be good to see how this develops. Yeah, it's interesting in the sense that it's kind of a grey area if you think of it as like insider trading or insider dealing, really, because there's no financial incentive in terms of the official fantasy football game. I know you like you kind of win like a holiday and some football tickets, but it's not like a transactional bet or something. So it's kind of hard to clamp down. But you are right, you know, if the teams are getting leaked early, does that then sway a opposition manager's decision in real life? There's, there is a, a knock-on effect, but I think also if Dean Smith is 
showing umbrage after losing a game, then it is very easy to just say, actually, maybe he's just got the ump because they just lost to Villa. But, Matthew, the reason they lost to Villa was because of a excellent Harvey Barnes performance. And I believe you have a new musical instrument for our England campaign. Is this correct? Indeed we do. I, so those of you who sort of followed the podcast in the earlier point of the season know we had the Dominic Calvert-Lewin kazoo, which was basically our way of basically saying, you know, he should get in the England squad because I believe we had, I believe we had a we we tried to have a bell for Jamie Vardy That's during right, the yeah. latter end of last season when we tried to get him out of retirement. So in the same spirit of musical instruments, although I'm not quite sure if this counts as musical, what we have now in the latest addition to the Real Football Cast is the England get him on the plane slash bus because they're not going anywhere because it's all going to be at home, but get him on the plane rattle. <laughs> oh, there we go. So, so any t- so if there's any of the fringe players, this won't be coming out for the likes of you know Jordan Pickford, who I think is a certainty for the squad. Henderson, if he's fit, Harry Kane, all the yada yada yada, all those players. But it's for the, those who are on the bubble, those who are on the fringes of the squad. If we think that they deserve the chance to go to the Euros, to sit in St George's Park for the best part of two months, then they will be receiving the real football part, uh, real football cast rattle. And that was the first instance of it. Okay, so with the rattle now rattled, do you honestly think Harvey Barnes has a chance of the final twenty-three, Matthew? It's a bit of a it's a bit of a tough one because you look at the squads and you know the it's effectively the wide players because if you look at the the, you know, the makeup of of an international squad of an international tournament, it's basically two players for every position and then three goalkeepers because because and then you can. Also, you can tweak it a little bit, so you don't have to have three centre-backs. You don't have to have four centre-backs. If you have someone like Declan Rice, who can play centre-back and centre-midfield, you can sort of count them as two. So, really, England have four winger spots available, in effect. If you think Southgate's going to play a three up front with Kane in the middle, Sterling out wide is probably going to be one. Sancho is probably going to be one. Grealish is probably going to be one. And then you probably make the argument for Marcus Rashford. Um, as a wide man, maybe he'll go central. So, there's a little bit, there's a lot of work still to be done on that front. You know, Jack Grealish is probably going to be in the consideration as well after him. So there's a lot of work to be done, but the way things are going, if he continues on his form, I say, I say rattle. You've heard it here first. Right then, Max. James Madison is another one who might get some rattle treatment. He's got Leicester's opener, but has he done enough to break into Gareth Southgate's squad? Because when you consider as Matthew has just said, how many options there are in that attacking realm, and the fact he's not really in favour, he's going to be up against it, isn't he? Yeah, I think very much. I think if he hadn't had, you know, the the, the shenanigans over um, over lockdown and, and everything like that, and Southgate kind of questioning his character, or at least saying, oh, you know, you need to smarten up a bit, you know, if you're an England player, you need to, you know, you need to ha- have these standards of behaviour. If, he, if that hadn't gone on in the background, I reckon he'd be in a better place. But, you know, equally, um, uh, it's going to be really, really difficult for him to get into into that team, given the, the, the strength and depth that we have in our kind of attacking midfielder and winger spots. Um, and given that we might play, it looks like we might play three at the back, um, you know, with wing backs, then we're only going to have two central players, which means that the likes of Grealish and Foden and, you know, Madison and Mount are going to be fighting for one of the wide spots, like one of the winger spots, rather than one of the central spots. It's not like Southgate regularly plays 4-2-3-1 with like a number 10, and you can think, right, that'd be perfect for Foden or um, Mount or Madison or whatever. So I think 
basically just because of that, because of the kind of formation that England generally play. He's not good enough defensively to be, uh, you know, one of those two players um, kind of holding central players like Henderson or Rice or, you know, Dyer or whoever. And so, and, and I don't think he's maybe versatile enough to play out on the wing. So I can't see it happening, even if Southgate go, completely changes his system and it looks like he's going to play like a 4-2-3-1 or, you know, a 4-3-3 with um, one of the midfielders a little bit further forward. I still think that the likes of Mount and uh, and Phil Foden and potentially Grealish will be ahead of him in in uh, in the pecking order. So he has had a really good season. He's obviously really gifted um, technically, but Leicester play him in a kind of formation where he doesn't have to do too much defensive work. That suits him really well. Against someone like, you know, France or Germany or Italy or Spain or one of the European heavyweights, you know, one of the European big boys, I don't think um, he would he'd start the game and to be honest you wouldn't want him starting the game because you know you want everyone contributing to that team effort I'm not saying he's not a hard worker um but but basically I, I can't see it happening um he might be good off the bench but then there are so many options ahead of him I, I can't see it happening okay then Carl talking of up against it that's Tottenham after their defeat to West Ham but I want to look at David Moyes on this show because after well, he is working with a perceived lesser squad compared to Tottenham, but how much of West Ham's relative success at the moment is down to just simple good coaching, good man management? And if that is the case, why is Jose Mourinho not doing that at Spurs? Yeah, I think, like as you say, it, it does come down, doesn't it, to good management, you know, potentially good man management, creating a feel-good feeling around the club. Um, and let's face it, you know, they, they've played and got some results against some really good sides at the moment, West Ham. Um, so that they are a handful um, and, and, you know, fair fair play to them because they're having the season of their lives at the moment, you know, inside the top four, you know, a couple of points ahead of Chelsea. You know, I guess the real interesting bit now is whether they can kind of see that over the line or whether, you know, come the end of the, you know, the, the running, the final running gets a little bit too much for them. You know, a couple of injuries, could that kind of knock them off the rails a little bit? But right now, they're riding a wave and you have to say, well, you know, that, that, that just creates good momentum and a good feeling around the club. And David Moyes is obviously, you know, kind of taking full advantage of that. So uh, you've got to sit there and say, well, you know, fair play well done to them. I think they probably would be most neutrals, you know, maybe, you know, there'd be a lot of neutrals that would be hoping, well, you know, we want to see one club kind of break in there and West Ham would be a club that a lot of them might root for to try and break into that top four uh, as one of those one-off seasons where, you know, an outsider comes in and kind of makes the most of their chances. In the next question around, you know, why is Mourinho not doing that? Well, that that's a question that right now I think is kind of, you know, it, everyone's myth buyers and they around what's going wrong uh, uh, down at White Hart Lane. And I don't think anyone can really put their finger on it, to be honest. No, they can't. We haven't got enough time for that one. I'll tell you what, though, if Leicester and West Ham are representing Europe in, sorry, England in the Champions League next season, I think my Tuesday and Wednesday nights might become a bit more free. But anyway, Matthew... <laughs> Matthew, let's continue our Bailwatch series. Does the past week offer some optimism for Wales this summer? Is he just starting to warm up at the right time? Yeah, it's it's interesting. Well, I knew the bill was going to get a mention somehow. This, it's it's a bit of an interesting one because there's been all this clamour, you know, he, his good performance against West Ham and then his excellent performance against Wolfsburg, which, you know, no disrespect, it was Wolfsburg who are the seventh best team in Austria yeah. or something along those lines. It's not... I mean, they've got to this stage in the Europa League. They're a good team. 
but I'm not going to judge Gareth Bale and how good his quality is against them. I'm good. I'm more likely to judge it against Manchester City, which we had that brief. Uh, st- we had that brief glimpse a couple of weeks ago. But at the same time, you do have to balance. And why he has been balanced is because of his fitness issues. You know, I want Gareth Bale to be starting every single week, but I know that's not going to be. It's just not feasible. I mean, mainly tactically, because I really can't see where he's going to fit. You know, as a number ten behind Kane with Son, not particularly for me. Um, but also his fitness issues. You know that as the, if he plays ninety minutes, that's basically ninety chances that he's going to pick up a hamstring injury, which he which he will do. So I think uh, Jose Mourinho is right to manage him this way. But I do think he can, you know, loosen things up just a little bit. You know, rather than giving him, um, you know, 30 minutes coming off the bench, give him the whole of the second half. Rather than giving him 10 minutes, give him 30 minutes sort of thing. I think now we've got to the point where we've seen what Gareth Bale can bring to a side. Now we just need to bring it, you know, it just needs to be, you know, brought, you know, brought brought more forward. Let's put it that way. Yeah, I think the pace of the... Uh minutes needs to start picking up because we are at the busiest end of the season actually when is the busiest end of the season it's about Easter isn't it so we're nearly at the busiest end of the season but this is really when Bale needs to start doing that business but talking of business Max West Ham now we are coming up to the third third of the season the final third of the season I should say so the reason West Ham are where they are is not a fluke you know we can't dismiss them anymore however they've got an incredibly tough run of fixtures coming up if they want to be in Europe next season this is going to be the acid test isn't it yeah, exactly, exactly. Because I'm not going to say they they had they've been having an easy run, but basically earlier in the season, I think at the very beginning of the season they had a really really tricky run, and then in the kind of and they actually did really well in in that in that early run. So that's a kind of a good uh, harbinger for their for their future kind of performances. But in in the meantime, in the middle section of the season, they've basically. Um, They've basically had a bit of a run of generally easier games, and I'm not saying they haven't performed well. Of course, they have. They've done really well, um, and they've been really consistent, even against big teams like Tottenham, for example. Um, so I can see them carrying on their good form, but if they um, drop off slightly, you know, the the race for the top four is close enough that even a, a, a little a little drop off in form might be enough to see, you know, Chelsea, Liverpool, Everton. Um, overtake them. I think it might be a little bit, I mean, there's a long ways to go. I think it might be a little bit late for the likes of Villa and Tottenham and Arsenal to get top four, but definitely the, the kind of the rest of the chasing pack in fifth, sixth, seventh, um, Chelsea, Liverpool, Everton, I definitely think have the capability to overtake them. And, you know, West Ham will be thinking, right, well, we've done well so far. Now let's see it through until the end of the season. Uh, and you kind of see what happens. Maybe for, maybe West Ham, kind of in their heart of hearts, would prefer to have a go in the Europa League, and that might be a little bit less kind of draining on their squad, and they might have a bit of a better chance of of, uh, of getting a bit far in that competition. Um, but, you know, at the same time, how often are they going to have the chance to play in the Champions League? Some of those players, you know, might be once in a lifetime thing. So it'll be really interesting to see what happens. So so can I just can I just add something? Because I want to pick up something on Dan on what Dan said. Um, I think there is some you have to give credit to West Ham for what they've done. But when you said this isn't a fluke, Arsenal are down in 10th, Tottenham are down in 9th, Everton, Everton are in 7th, Liverpool are in 6th and have had their injury problems. I don't want to take credit away from West Ham for what they've done, but this is a season where it's not just because of them. They are only in this position because other teams have 
you know, have fallen off a cliff, as it were. Similar to Leicester in 2016. All credit to them, they did well. But in a quote-unquote normal season, that Leicester side would have just would have just finished in the Champions League rather than finishing in rather than winning the title. Much in the same way, in a normal season, West Ham would probably be about seventh or eighth right now, rather than challenging for Europe. I just I just think that needs to be a clarifier, a qualifier in in all these things. Like David Moyes is in a in the running for manager of the year and everything like that. And to an extent, he should be. But let's just. There are other factors to to factor into this into this whole discussion. You can even make the same argument for Leicester as well. So I just think we need just need to calm down just a little bit on those two fronts. That is a fair point, but I guess football in general. Why do we always frame team success because of others' failures? Like we can't just say that team's done really well because they've done really well. It's always because Tottenham are collapsing, because Liverpool have had a bad defence of their title. You know, there's no right or wrong, but it's always you know we're always looking at the because of this negative, not because they're positive. But anyway, we digress. I haven't got enough time for that this week, but maybe come back to that thought because it's a good talking point. But Cole, Man United, they returned to winning ways against Newcastle. I think the biggest talking point was Marcus Rashford's modern-day penalty, as it was labelled. So I guess really looking at that, you roll your eyes, but at the same time, nothing's really a surprise at the moment, is it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I think people kind of come and some of these players are kind of come up, coming up with the most ludicrous way that you can take a penalty ever, aren't they? You know, I think we probably all saw the clip from a South American game, didn't we, recently, where, you know, the guy took a run up from the halfway line. No. And, you know, it was almost it was comical. And, and thankfully, he misses at the end of it. And quite rightly. Um, and yeah, you do just sort of think sometimes, don't you? You know, the old Alan Shearer approach, just run up and blast it in the top corner. There's nothing wrong with that approach. But some players, I think, try to get too clever. Um, and, you know, it's always funny when it doesn't work out, does it? Uh, or, you know, it looks great when they go in. It's funny when it doesn't work out. Um I guess, you know, there's you've got to give maybe some credit for the fact that the guys feel confident enough to do that. I, I don't necessarily like it because I don't always think it's fair on the goalkeepers, you know, all these staggered run-ups and hopping and skipping and jumping. It won't be long before we have a player do some, you know, triple somersault flip before he manages to take the penalty. Um, and I just don't think necessarily it's always fair on the goalkeeper who kind of has so many restrictions put on him about not moving off the line, etc. But the player is allowed to keep running up, stuttering, stopping, hopping, skipping um, and then take it. But a good win all in all. So Matthew, if you leave your Wales watch, sorry, Wales watch hat on, Dan James has had a very solid week. So I bet you're hoping he can continue his form and carry that over to the Euros. Yeah, absolutely. And I was just having to be discussing this um, with the Fulham podcast I do um, the other day. You know, just how good is Dan James? I do think that Dan James is sort of because he's come under a lot of stick for Man for Manchester United, and in all, in all fairness, not all of it is his fault. I think he sort of jumped a bit too far in terms of, in, in terms of the leap he made. I think personally, he would have been better off going to Leeds United where yeah, in, during that whole saga, I think he'd be much more appreciated, you know, rather than have to live, live up to big expectations of playing for Man United. But it's good. I honestly don't think he'll be at Man United come the end, come, come the end of the summer. I think they will find a loan for him somewhere, whether it be, you know, within the Premier League or maybe some, maybe somewhere abroad. Um, to one of the to one of these fashionable fashionable German or French clubs maybe, um, again he's been okay, but I just think a lot of expectation was put upon him, and you know he was never ever going to be in a position to fulfil them, especially when he's surrounded with, you know, 
arguably world-class talent at the rest of the Man United squad. Well, this is it, Max, isn't it? You know, he got off the radar big time, and it's almost a surprise he's back in the fold because, as Matthew says, he's not the flashiest of names. There's a lot more calibre of talent, which is, you know, sexier at Man United. So does he at least need credit for grinding his way back into the fold? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, to be honest, I, I don't, obviously, I'm, I'm not kind of party to what's happening in training, but he, he seems a very, very hard worker. Defensively, he's good. He really makes a, a big effort to, to, to win the ball back immediately when he loses it. And he's he's uh, kind of an important part of their, of their pressing system in defence. But basically, you know, United just kind of want that, that, that sexy name and attack, you know, Greenwood, you know, because Dan James isn't going to smash in like 17 goals in super quick time like Greenwood did last season. And so even though you kind of lose a little bit of that defensive solidity um, and kind of general build up play and assist threat um, when you play Greenwood, um, Greenwood is the is the is the sexier name. And so Dan James kind of gets gets overlooked a little bit. Um, I, I don't know what what Dan James is doing in training, but I, I get the impression that it seems to be because of the lack of other options on the right hand side that he's playing because you know Pogba's kind of played out wide a little bit to fit him and Fernandez in the same team but he's not a wide player he's obviously going to keep drifting inside um, Greenwood's been a little bit off the boil they've tried Rashford on the right but it's not the same he prefers cutting in from the left Martial has been played there a little bit um, you know I think Bruno's kind of flitted around but basically they, they haven't found someone for that role yet and I mean Fair, fair play to him because I, I assume he's been plugging away. He, he looks like a hard worker and he, and he works hard when he's on the pitch. Um, so I don't know exactly what he's been doing in training, but fair play to him because he, he took his opportunity quite well. I thought he played he played all right. And given that how young he was and how little you know Premier League exp, experience he had, he literally had just been playing in the championship for a season or two with Swansea. And then to get a, a, his kind of dream move to Manchester United, maybe it came a little bit a little bit early, maybe the the right place, but at the wrong time. And you can make a comparison maybe with Zaha, who was also very raw and, you know, quick and talented, but maybe had that move a little bit early, had the kind of pressure and expectation that, that comes with being a Manchester United player and maybe wasn't ready to deal with it yet. And as you say, I think maybe a, a better kind of stepping stone move would have been for him to go to Leeds and then potentially to United in, in a couple of years. Um, but yeah, fair play to him for getting himself back in the team. Um, you always like to see a young player uh, doing well. And definitely, if he kind of keeps up this form, then he'll be playing more for Manchester United and probably Wales. Absolutely. Right, a quick fire round. Cole, this is going to be your last act. So before you drop off, what did you make of Callum Hudson-Odoi's hooking as a sub and Thomas Tuchel's comments afterwards? Is that going to dent the England international's confidence? Yeah, strange, wasn't it? Because I, I think since he came, he was really starting to kind of show some promise. Um, and looking really good. So, you know, that was a real, you know, eye opener. And I think that's, you know, that that's hopefully hope that Hudson Adoy takes it for what it is. And I think that's a manager that's kind of saying, look, I think you're really important, but that needs to change if you want to be part of this squad. Um, and that's hope Hudson Adoy can kind of take that in the right way you know, change what he needs to because I think, you know, he's got a great future ahead of him if he, if he just makes sure he's professional. So, you know, let's hope it takes it on. But it, it was a, you know, it was an unusual thing to hear a manager come out and say so bluntly. It was, wasn't it? You know, unusual to see the sub get subbed and then the scathing comments thereafter. But anyway, Cole, I won't keep you because I know you've got to dash today. So thank you ever so much for your efforts this week and hopefully we'll catch up next Tuesday. Definitely. Really enjoyed it, chaps, and, and catch you again next week.
top man. Right, so you two, Cheers, don't, don't go anywhere because I've got to finish up with uh, the other three matches. Matthew, Arsenal-Man City. It's fair to say Arsenal gave a good account themselves, but they made the crucial mistake of giving City a 1-0 head start. And as we've seen this season, that's all they need to control the game. Yeah, absolutely. The best analysis I, I saw of this was from AFTV, which I know might not wrangle well with you being a Spurs fan. That's but right. there was but, but there was one of the pundits on there, uh, uh, James, who I happen to work with. Uh, fantastic. But he said it was basically like a like a bully in the schoolyard that was much taller than you. So he could hold you at arm's length and you could just <laughs> swing away and you just never miss. And you just you just always never hit him. It was that sort of thing. You know, once Man City have got their one nil lead, you know, as inconsistent as Arsenal have been they've shown they can you know turn up on the big stage occasionally but against Man City that was always going to be enough to see them through you know they could really have gone three or four if they wanted to but no one nil they're not going to do anything job done let's just you know take the foot off the gas for next 90 minutes and Max Wolves versus Leeds I guess an element of fortune for Wolves in both their goal and the fact that Patrick Bamford had another type VAR decision go against him yeah, yeah, it was a little bit fortunate. I mean, Wolves won't care. The kind of the, the form that they've been in, I think they'll just be pleased to um, to to get the result. But yeah, it was a little bit unlucky for Bamford, and he had a he had a bit of a go at VAR after the game, um, which he you know that's his prerogative. It, it was a little bit unfortunate, and then also obviously the goal coming off Melier's head is just you know pure bad luck, and you can't do anything about that. But I think uh, Leeds will be generally enthused by their play, and you know by the chances they had. And by the fact that had that ball, you know, not ricocheted, uh, kind of fortunately for Wolves off Melier's head, that they would have kept a clean sheet. And obviously, you know, we know that they're capable of of, of scoring goals, but generally their defence has been pretty poor and they've been conceding a lot of goals. So for them to kind of almost get a clean sheet were it not for a bit of bad luck, I think uh, Bielsa will be pretty pleased with that. OK, then, Burnley versus West Brom. I think that was the most nil-nil of nil-nils ever, really. I think we could have all picked that last week if we were doing a prediction round. Anyone want to add anything about Mike Dean's return to refereeing? Anyone? No? I'll take that as a no then. On that note, let's end the show because that is pretty much full time. So, Carl's already departed, so thanks to Carl as always. I just need to thank my other two Pod Squad members. So, Max, thanks for your time this afternoon. I hope you enjoyed that one. Yeah, very much, and all hail the rattle. Absolutely. And Matthew, thanks for bringing the rattle. And also, I hope you enjoyed that one, and thanks for your time as always. Not a, not a worry, it's an absolute pleasure. Cheers, guys, and also to the listeners out there. And with that said, it just leads me to say that my name's Dan Tracy. This is The Real Football Cast. And until next time, goodbye. Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.